Okay, now Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We have arrived at the final chapter of the book of Revelation, and we have some final comments made. Verses 1 to 5 actually is a continuation of the preceding chapter where the eternal state is described. And then we have an assortment of exhortations and, and warnings for us, both for the believers and for unbelievers. So let's review what we have here in verses 1 to 5 first. The angel, the angel who was showing him things of the preceding chapter, the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, all of that, also showed him in verse 1, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this is likely a, a figurative river, water of life, looking like clear as crystal, he says, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The purpose of this river is to radiate and reflect the glory of God coming from the throne of God, both from the, the throne of God and the Lamb, because the two of them, God the Father and the Lamb, they reign together. And this river is in the middle of its street, in the middle of the street of the city. This is what he sees, because this water of life coming from God is meant to remind and signify the fact that all life comes from God. As it says in John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who comes to me, or he who believes in me, shall never thirst. He considers himself that water of life. The Father and the Son 
give us life. And that's uh, the river of the water of life. It is a flowing river. Therefore, it is living water. When the Bible says that such and such river is a living river, it means that it's an active river. It's active and bubbling. It's not a stale and stagnant body of water that produces death, but it is active and a running river, therefore a living river. That's what God is. But not only does he see that, he sees the tree of life. The tree of life which was in the Garden of Eden, and even the river that was in the Garden of Eden, here he sees it in the eternal state. That which Adam and Eve enjoyed temporarily, very temporarily, on the sixth day before the fall, they enjoyed temporarily all the fruits of the garden, the tree of life, they had access to that, though they didn't partake of it, and also the river was there. All of those things are restored here in the eternal state. Forever we will enjoy those kinds of blessings. He also says in verse 2 that this tree bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 12 different kinds of fruit. When in the scriptures there is fruit born on a tree, it's signifying righteousness and truth. It's signifying virtues that come from God and that are produced in God's people. This is not a literal every month because eternity will be without time. We know that eternity is forever and ever and time shall be no more. That's the way it will be. So when he says that it's fruit, bearing fruit every month, he's signifying the fact that there will be righteousness and truth that lasts forever. It continues on and on forever. Also, verse 2 says that it has leaves which were for the healing of the nations. Not that they are for the healing of the nations in the future or will be in the future, but they were for the healing of the nations. When the nations partake of the tree of life, that is figuratively tree of life, but literally Christ, they are healed of their disease, their spiritual diseases, their fatal diseases, not temporary diseases, but their fatal spiritual diseases that produce death in them, they can be healed when they partake of the ultimate tree of life, which is Christ, and his, the, his leaves which emanate, his lush and green uh, fertile leaves and branches. When people partake of him, then they are healed of their sins. And this is for the nations. It's not only for Jews, and it's not only for Gentiles, but it's for Jews and Gentiles. The emphasis here is that it's for the nations. When God established his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the other patriarchs, Moses and David, and so forth, he did so because he not only loved Israel, but he also loved the nations, and he intended for everyone to be saved by faith in Christ. And that's why it's healing for the nations. Verse 3 emphasizes what we heard in chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4, and 22, 3. And there shall no longer be any curse. There's no curse. There's no curse of death. There's no curse of pain and sorrow and mourning. All of those things, tears, everything goes away because all of those were the curse or the punishment, the penalty for man's sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, their curse brought about death. Death was spiritually immediate and then physically in time. In time, that's what happened. And all of that is no more. No longer any curse. There's no sin. There's no misery. There's no death. There's no torment and pain for the people of God. There's no curse on them. When he says that there shall no longer be any curse, he does not mean there's no curse on wicked people because their death, the second death, was explained in chapter 20, uh, verses 11 to 15. And it's also explained in this chapter, in, verses, in chapter 22, verse 15, that outside of the city, meaning outside of the eternal state, are the dogs and sorcerers and the others. The, the wicked people who do not repent of their sin, their destiny is the lake of fire or hell. 22.3 further says, And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. God will be personally present. The Father and the Son will be personally present. And we, His bondservants, we who serve Him, now we will serve Him perfectly. Now we serve Him imperfectly, then we will serve Him 
perfectly. Service is, in the Bible, not necessarily doing this or that activity for God, though they, that may be the case. In the Bible, usually service toward God is the worship of God. This is the way it is, for example, in the Ten Commandments. It says that we should not make idols, we shall not um, worship them or serve them or bow down to them. That's the phraseology there. So service of God means usually worship of God, primarily in reference to Him. Then it uh, also says in verse 4, that, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. They shall see his face. We will see God, God the Son, because he has a body of flesh and bones, and he still has that. Philippians 3.20 says that he has a body, and our bodies, when we see him upon his return, will be transformed in conformity to his body. He has an immortal body, and we shall have an immortal body. So we will see the face of Christ, no doubt. Also, First uh, Timothy 2.5 says, 2.4 and 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, man, or men, the man Christ Jesus. There's one God and one mediator, and the apostle, after Jesus' ascension, resurrection and ascension, still calls him the man Christ Jesus. So we will see the face of the Son. However, the Father and the Spirit do not have any tangible or physical form. When it says we will see His face, this face of God will merely and simply be we will see His radiant glory. We'll see His brilliant light. We will be able to see it and not perish. We'll be able to see it and not have to close our eyes and turn away from Him or say, Woe is me, I am ruined, like Isaiah said. We won't have that experience that way because we will be able to joyfully and happily look upon God because we will be without sin. Now, that does not mean physically, but it will mean in terms of His glorious light. That's the sense in which we will see God. Verse 4 says that His name shall be on their foreheads. Remember earlier in the book of Revelation that with the, the Antichrist, the Antichrist will want his name or his mark to be on the forehead of the people, the people who follow him and worship him. And that signifies ownership. They can't do anything unless their master who owns them tells them to do something. But in our case... When we have the name of God on our foreheads, just as it says in verse 3, we are his bondservants. That means, just like Exodus 21, a servant willingly desires, willingly and joyfully desires to be with his master. He doesn't want to receive freedom from slavery. He wants to stay with his master. In the same way here, we are his bondservants forever, and we'll have his name on our foreheads, figuratively speaking, because he owns us. We are his uh, servants or slaves, and we will serve him and do his will forever. Verse 5 also continues. There shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have the need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Similar to twenty-one twenty-five, chapter 21, verse 25, it says... And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. When we think of night, that's when we think of the often many negative things. Many evils occur at night, though some good does. We sleep at night, but often we can't sleep, and our thoughts and dreams, they torment us. So nighttime, not only personally, but also because of wickedness of other people, that all happens at night. And usually in the Bible... Night is there to signify darkness, evil deeds, people who, are like, who like to exploit others when it's dark all around. But that won't be there anymore. Another significant statement about how it'll be light, it'll be bright, and it's going to be God, not the sun. There's no need of the light of the sun, but God himself who will illumine everything. So we will have again... Righteousness, truth, no sin, no curse, no death, nothing like that, forever. Also, we will reign forever and ever. We will reign. 
Chapter 5, verse 10 says that we will be a kingdom of priests and we will reign on the earth. And here it says we shall reign forever and ever. We will be treated like kings forever. That's the kind of reign we will have. We're not going to be commoners. We're not going to be uh, nobodies. We're not going to be insignificant people. God will elevate us because of our adoption in Christ. He adopts us in Christ and He makes us His sons. Now we belong to His eternal dynasty. The Son of David, Christ Himself, we will belong to His eternal dynasty and will reign with Him and enjoy all of those benefits forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And verse 6, after all of this is explained, now we have some concluding words and exhortations and a few reminders. Verse 6, And he, the angel, said to me, These words are faithful and true. He reminds the apostle and all of us, we who read, that all these words are faithful and true. Everything will come about. There's nothing false in it. There's nothing that will fail. There's nothing that you should not believe. We should believe it all because they are faithful and true words. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. All of His words are true. God is the God of truth. Christ is the, the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So whatever comes from them, through their messengers, an angel, a, a, glorious, a glorious angel, not a fallen angel, but a righteous angel, a chosen angel, reveals all this to the apostle, the holy apostle. The prophets are holy prophets and holy apostles. And they're called holy because they are saved, they are sanctified, and God uses them as vessels to reveal His Word. So we should believe His Word, not doubt it. Everyone who is truly born again, he has heard the Word of Christ, and he continues to believe the Word of Christ. He hears and continues to believe. That's why this is here. Don't think that all of this is fanciful, mythological, spurious and specious. Don't think that these words in the book of Revelation are that. Yes, some of these are enigmatic words and phrases and events, but they're not impossible to understand and they are not impossible to believe. We must believe them. He who created the universe in Genesis chapter 1, he can certainly do all subsequent miracles. If we believe that an almighty, eternal God created the universe, everything else should be elementary to believe. He says in verse 6, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. The Lord, the sovereign Lord, who is also the God or the mighty creator of the spirits, of the prophets. God is the one who created the soul or the spirit, the internal, immaterial, inner man. He created the inner man in, according to his image. He created man according to his image. He certainly has control over the spirits and can guide them to do his will and to write his will. We find a similar statement in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Know this first of all, because it's foundational. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and whatever they did by their human will did not originate by their human will, and it's not bound by their corrupt, sinful human will. But God, the Holy Spirit, guided them to write these prophecies. This is what is said in Revelation 22, verse 6. He does, throw, does so through the mediation of an angel, a righteous angel, to his bondservants. Not wicked people, not people who are enslaved to their own sin, but those who have been redeemed with a new heart and who have been called into the ministry of, of prophethood and apostleship. That's the kind of bondservants he has. And these things 
must shortly take place. When the Bible says this, as well as in verse 7, I am coming quickly, and furthermore throughout uh, this book and even this chapter, when it says this, this phrase must shortly take place and I am coming quickly, it does not mean that in the next second Christ could come. It was not intended for people to think that that's what, it would, uh, that's what could or would happen, that he would come at any moment. What it really means is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. What does it mean when he says it must shortly take place? What does it mean I am coming quickly? 2 Peter 3, 3. He explains. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What is their mockery? Everything's going on. You said he's coming. You said he's coming quickly, imminently. You said he's coming, but he hasn't come. Everything's going on as usual. That is their mockery. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat." And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient. He's waiting for many others to be saved. And he says, with God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Not literally, but as, or like. And in due time, he will come. He's coming quickly and suddenly, unexpectedly, to wicked people. And he's warning us not to be like wicked people that are taken by surprise. But to the righteous, he will not come suddenly, shockingly. He will not come that way. He will come because we are anticipating his coming. We are living a holy life, all godliness, and looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's the sense in which we're supposed to understand Jesus coming quickly. He comes quickly for those sons of night, sons of darkness, those people who are overtaken like a thief in the night that they don't expect to come but not for righteous people. A further example of this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul explains this very thing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. So, back to Revelation 22, 7, he says, Now Christ speaks. And certain of these verses are Christ speaking. Verse 7 is Christ. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words, the prophecy of this book. Christ affirms what the angel said in the preceding verse. Christ also affirms that this is prophecy and that we should heed it. We should listen to it. We should understand it. We should obey it. What it says about God, we should believe it and not reject it. People say, well, I don't like to think of God as a holy God or righteous or one who's Wrathful, or one who punishes sin and sinners, or one who throws people into the lake of fire. I don't want to think of God like that. Well, we have no option. The book of Revelation teaches it. We need to heed it. We need to believe that about God and respond accordingly. 
If we're living in sin, return from our sin, repent, and believe in the gospel. Continue to be faithful to Christ. That's what we need to do. Heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus gives his stamp of approval on the angel he sent to, to deliver this message. Now, after hearing all this, John again is overwhelmed, mesmerized, dazed. Look at what he does in verse 8. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He actually heard and saw these things. John now, as the final mediator of all this revelation, reiterates that I actually heard and saw these things. I, as a prophet, I, John, John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, James and John, two apostles of Christ during his ministry, I, John, heard and saw these things. I'm not speaking frivolous things. I'm not imagining anything. This is no mirage. This is no invention, human invention. I actually heard and saw these things. And when he heard and saw, he had a wrong initial reaction. He had a knee-jerk reaction. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. There is no example in the Bible of men worshiping angels and it being justified. There is no validation of that. There is the wrong application of that in, for example, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, verses, uh, verses 18 to 23, or 17 to 23. There is the worship of angels which Paul condemns, Paul the Apostle condemns. So there is no valid position of us worshiping angels, praying to them or anything like that. Nothing like that in the Bible. Why? Verse 9. And he said to me, the angel said to John, Do not do that. He stops him immediately. He stops him before it could actually take place. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. I am a fellow servant. I also serve God. Just like you serve God, I serve Him. Hebrews 1.14 Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And also, he's, he says here, And of your brethren, the prophets. Your brothers, John, are the prophets. John is a prophet. He's functioning like a prophet right here in this book. And he's just like the prophets of the Old Testament. Moses and the rest. He's just like them. And they all knew to worship God only. Also, he includes us. And of those who heed the words of this book. We who tr truly and correctly understand the worship of God, we do not worship angels. So all of us in unison, chosen angels, prophets, apostles, and all who heed, all the saints, we all should worship God. Only to Him and to no one else. Not to any other saints, dead saints. Not to any angels. We should not consult evil spirits, mediums and spiritists to talk to them and to pray and worship them. Nothing like that. All of that is satanic, occultic, and contrary to the Ten Commandments. We ought to only worship God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll see more of that in just a moment. Verse 10. And he said to me, the angel said to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal it up. Don't hide it. Don't conceal it. But keep it open and available. This is a book that is understandable. It's accessible and understandable. We must understand it because it's for our spiritual benefit. The time is near. Another indication, another phrase saying that we all need to prepare for this imminent return. Then, verse 11. Verse 11 is an odd statement, but not so odd when you consider it in relation to other texts. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. There are two phrases for the wicked and two for the righteous. The wicked people do wrong and they 
practice filthiness, that is, corrupt, evil, dirty deeds. They practice sordid gain and all kinds of other corrupt things, sexual immorality and everything else. They do wrong and they practice filthiness, spiritual filthiness. And then righteous people practice righteousness and holiness. That's what they pursue. The oddity of this verse is in the statement, let, let the one, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And the corresponding truth for the righteous. Let the righteous do righteousness, practice righteousness. Why does he say, let it continue, may it continue? The righteous do their righteousness and the wicked let them do their wickedness. He doesn't say, wicked people stop your wickedness. Why does he not do that? It's similar to a couple of passages. Many passages, but two I think will show us. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, which is also quoted in the New Testament several times. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 and verse 9. The Lord speaks to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, the Lord said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. He is commissioned, Isaiah is commissioned in verse 9 to tell the people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Why does it say, keep on listening, but do not perceive? We would think if we were reading this superficially, we would think it should say, keep on listening and then perceive. Keep on looking and then understand. He doesn't say that. He says, keep on listening, but do not perceive. I want you to keep listening, but then don't perceive what I'm talking about. I want you to keep looking, but do not understand anything. I don't want you to understand. That's what Isaiah meant to preach to the people. And then God says, verse 10, their destiny. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Render it that way. Make that happen. Make sure that, that is, they are insensitive, dull and dim. Insensitive, dull, and dim. That's what I want to happen to these people. Lest. Lest. L-E-S-T. Or else. Because if they are not rendered that way, then they will see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. If you don't do this, then they are going to repent and be healed. And I don't want that to happen, is the implication. I don't want that to happen. We have something like that in the New Testament. I, I remind you, as we find Matthew 23, Matthew 23, that the passage we just read in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 is quoted a few times in the New Testament. It is quoted. So it is also New Testament truth. It's New Testament truth. And here we have, Matthew 23, another example from the lips of Jesus. From the lips of Jesus. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Okay. They claim they're not like their ancestors who were murderous people, murderous against the martyred prophets. They would not have done that. And Jesus says, you make this statement, you're bearing witness that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You claim that, that's what they said, we would never do that. And they are saying the same, we would never do that. But just as they said that we would never do that, and you're saying we would never do that, they end up doing that. So, what would we think superficially Jesus would say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But not at this point. Notice what he says, 32. Sometimes he says repent, but not at this point. Verse 32. 
Fill it and the measure of the guilt of your fathers. That's a command, isn't it? It's an imperative. Fill up. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. He's saying, keep sinning so that your, your guilt, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Live up to what your fathers did. Keep doing it. 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? He calls them by those names and then says, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? There's no way for you to escape. You're not going to escape. How shall you escape? 34. He's not done. 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Who's the sender? Christ. I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Well, if Jesus knows here, why is he sending them? He, if he knows that their outcome is going to be persecution and death, why is he sending them? 35 says, that, or so that, in order that, it's express, expressing the purpose. The purpose of his preceding statement is right here in verse 35. That, so that, upon you, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel, righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. He says he wants the culmination of all the righteous blood shed on the earth since Abel to be heaped on that generation. That's what he's saying. Jesus wants this to happen. That's why he's sending prophets, wise men, and scribes to them, all repentant ones, holy ones, so that they would be persecuted, put to death, and then Jesus will punish the persecutors. That's what we've read in the book of Revelation. And we have this final statement by the angel telling John that that's what God intends. The wrongdoers will still do wrong, and the filthy doers will still practice filthiness. But also, the righteous, this one is easier to understand, that the righteous will continue practicing righteousness. They will continue practicing righteousness forever. Now, we have to reiterate this point. The fact that in chapter 21, verse 4, it says, the first things have passed away, there won't be any curse, that is, Tears, death, mourning, or crying, and pain. None of those things will be in existence anymore. 21 verse 4. None of that will exist anymore. That means there is no sin. Then we saw in chapter 21, this heavenly Jerusalem come down, and we saw how God is present, and that the people of God will be there with God. And we saw in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, Indications of how we will see His brilliant presence. We will experience Him. There won't be any night. None of that will happen. We will be His bondservants. His name will be on our foreheads, meaning we'll do His will. We belong to Him. This is all what will happen forever and ever and ever. And also 22.11, we'll still be holy and we'll still practice righteousness. Not wickedness. Not anymore. This is important because there are people, some people, who think that because man is so autonomous, because man's will is able to resist God whenever he wants, because man's will is the clincher in our salvation, because man's will, they think, is, is sovereign and God cannot tell us what to do, or even make us do anything, these people think that even after Jesus returns, and even after there is a day of judgment, if they believe that, that we can, and even will, sin in the future. In the so-called eternal state, they think that sin is possible again. 
that there will still be conflict and disease and death and cancer and everything else will happen even in the future. That all that we're reading here in Revelation 21 and 22 especially of this renewal is just a religious fiction, a kind of better circumstance but not a perfect circumstance. That's all that it is. The world will get better one day but it will not get perfect. And there, there is no heaven, there is no hell. It's just that whatever has always happened will always continue to happen. But just some improvement in the future. That belief is false. It completely contradicts the Bible. The whole point of our redemption is not to sin again. Is not to experience pain and death again. Because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. No longer to experience any of those things forever. That's the, that's the view we should hold. Okay. Let's continue. Verse 12. 22-12. 22-12. Jesus speaks in 22-12 and 13. We know that because of the obvious reference here. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's coming quickly and he has a reward to render to every man according to what he has done. Christ will not only save us, but he will mete out rewards to us according to what he has done. According to what he has done does not mean we are saved by works. It means that the evidence of our salvation is shown in our works. Romans 2, 6 says that he will render to everyone according to what he has done. 1 Peter 1, 17 says that he will, each man's work will be uh, judged according to what he has done. 1 Peter 1, 17. According to what he has done. And Jesus says the same right here. That it is important for us to live righteously, to produce fruit, good works, righteous deeds. It's important for us to do that because it proves that we belong to Christ. We cannot say, I belong to Christ and live wickedly. Be an adulterer, be a drug addict, be an idolater, be a liar. We can't be any of those things. We, if we belong to Christ, our life will show it. Not perfectly, but there will be a difference before Christ and after our conversion. There must be a difference according to the scriptures. And this is holding out this hope for us that Christ will notice and Christ will reward us and we will be with him with that reward. Thirteen. Notice this, this exalted description of Christ. He says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Christ describes himself as the eternal God. He is the origin of all things and he is the culmination of all things. He is eternal. He is inscrutable. His understanding is infinite. His power. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. And he is uh, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, and what's the third one? Omniscient. Omniscient. He knows all things. This is the way Christ is. This is how he describes himself. Alpha and Omega, of course, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Since that was the dominant language of the first century, he describes himself that way. The first and the last, this is the way Isaiah described God. Isaiah does so in Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8, and other places in Isaiah. The beginning and the end. This is a reiteration, like John chapter uh, 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, but the origin of the beginning is the ultimate beginning, the eternal one, Christ. He is the beginning and He is the end. This is a clear self-identification of the deity of Christ. People say, Jesus never said, I am God. Well, he said many other things that make the same point. And even if he had said, I am God, you know what the critics would say? Well, Jesus never said that, some, just some people made it up. No, there's no way to please a skeptic and an unbeliever. There's no way to please him. There's nothing you can say or do to please him because he will look as a nit nitpicker to undermine the Bible so he, that he doesn't have to believe it. 
Jesus did claim deity for himself in many, many, many ways. In many ways. This is one such way. Then, further, verses 14 and 15. We continue to have, and this is our, the final one, a final distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The Bible does so from Genesis to Revelation. Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. If they have their robes washed, how are they washed? Revelation 7:14, By the blood of the Lamb. They are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Ironically, we have washed robes by Jesus' red blood. We are washed that way, spiritually and ironically that way. That's what it means. We are washed in His blood. It's necessary for Him to die and for us to believe in the purpose of His death, that is to forgive us of our sins by taking our punishment upon Him. Then 14, that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter by the gates into the city. We only have access to the tree of life if we believe in the death of Christ and we're washed by that death. We only have entrance into the city, the heavenly Jerusalem of chapter 21, the eternal state, the presence of God. We only have all that if we believe in the death of Christ. We will be blessed forever and ever. But who is expelled? Not that he was in the city and now thrown out of the city, but who has no access and lives outside of the city? Verse 15, outside does not necessarily mean that they're on the other side of the gate. But this is another way of saying they don't belong in the city. They don't have any citizenship in the city. They belong in hell, which chapter 20, 11 to 15 explained. Um, in that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast them out into the outer darkness, as Jesus said. This is the sense in which they are outside. They are cast out, meaning they are in hell. Who are the hell dwellers? First, the dogs. The dogs. Now, one or more or all of these may be what John means by the dogs. What does he mean by the dogs? There are four possibilities, and it could be any one or any number or all of these that John has in mind when he says the dogs. In Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18, Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18, male prostitutes are called dogs. Female prostitutes are also condemned there, but also male prostitutes are condemned. Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18, the male prostitutes are specifically called dogs. And what does a male prostitute do? He has sexual relationships with other men and usually in the temple. Not necessarily always, but usually in the temple. He has sex with other men. That's a male prostitute or dog in Deuteronomy. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Jesus calls Gentiles dogs. Gentiles dogs. But the Gentiles he has in mind are unbelieving Gentiles, idolatrous and immoral Gentiles. <coughs> Gentiles who don't believe the gospel and who worship their idols and pursue their own lusts and passions. That's the kind of Gentile he described as dogs. Then, not that Jesus is sending only Gentiles to hell. Philippians 3.2, Philippians 3.2, the Apostle Paul calls Judaizers dogs. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. These are the Ju Judaizers, that is, Jewish people who are claiming Christ, but saying, we follow Christ, but we also follow all of these ritualistic laws, including circumcision. We, you must practice all of these laws, including circumcision, for your salvation. It's not enough to believe in the death of Christ. It's not enough to believe that Jesus died for your sins. You have to believe that, plus everything else, and do everything else, otherwise you won't go to heaven. Paul called those kinds of people, those Jews, he called them dogs. And then lastly, a worthless man. A worthless man is also called a dog 
and more specifically, a dead dog. A dead dog. In 1 Samuel 24, 14, 1 Samuel 24, 14, and 2 Samuel 3, 8. 2 Samuel 3, 8. In both cases, somebody who's a worthless one, who has no benefit to another, he calls himself a dead dog. He calls himself that. So, a useless or worthless person. And even Titus 1.16 describes worthless people. It says that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. People who are worthless for doing good can also be called dogs. And this is why Jesus, in one more cross-reference, that is Jesus in Matthew 7, 6, He says, Do not cast your pearls before swine and do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not give what is holy to dogs. He's talking about these kinds of wicked people, worthless people who are of no value whatsoever because they don't want anything to do with the truth, the gospel. They just want to live their wicked lives. Then he says, sorcerers are outside. Sorcerers are those who practice channeling, mediums, spiritism, the occult, palm reading, um, astrology, horoscopes, I said palm reading, crystal balls, all of these kinds of things, Ouija boards. These people are sorcerers, the practice of the occult. And these people usually take drugs. They're usually those who push and take drugs themselves. And even when you see drug addicts, drug drug addicts also see things and hear things. Because demons take their inactive, they take their inactive and blank minds and come and seize them and possess them. This often happens. The evil spirits and drugs often go hand in hand. So people like this don't want the truth of God revealed in His Word, they would rather go into a dark corner and gaze into a crystal ball to hear from the devil. Some of them deny that it's the devil and demons, but others of them recognize that it is the devil and demons, and they don't care. They love it, and they pursue it headlong. These kinds of people will be outside in hell. Immoral persons. Immoral is sexually immoral. Immorality can take different forms, but usually in the Bible, when it's talking about immorality or immoral persons, it's talking about sexual immorality. Whatever kind of deviation, sexual deviation, if it's not between husband and wife, and proper marital relations, husband and wife, no sodomy in marriage, and no other kind of weird and bizarre kinds of activity in marriage, it has to be proper relations between husband and wife. If it's not that... Any other deviation means you are immoral. Whether it's lust and pornography, whether it is fornication, that's marriage or sex outside of marriage, whether it is adultery, that is the husband or the wife has sexual relations with someone who is not the spouse, that's adultery. Whether it is man with man, woman with woman, man with child, woman with child, child with child, any other deviation, any other thing you can imagine. Even today, someone uh, notified me, which I heard before, but sent me an article on sologamy. Sologamy. S-O-L-O-G-A-M-Y. Marrying yourself. (laughs) Marrying yourself. You cannot marry yourself. You cannot marry a tree or a dolphin or a horse or a dog or anything else. That's not marriage. All of that is deviation. All of that is sexual immorality. And people who practice such things are condemned. They are outside the city in hell. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But there is redemption according to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. People can be saved out of those things. But they cannot practice them. They cannot justify them and say, I'm a Christian child molester. You cannot do that. You cannot say, I'm a Christian kidnapper. You cannot do it, any of that. 
You, I cannot say I'm a Christian liar. Nothing like that is possible. Murderers, too. Murderers take innocent human life. They take away, they kill innocent human life. It's not murder to kill an animal for consumption or for protection. It's not murder to do so, and it's not even murder to kill a plant or a tree. It's murder to kill innocent human life. Genesis 9, verse 6 explains, verses 5 and 6. It's murder. And murderers who take away innocent human life, whether adult life or child life, even female life, and especially females because they are the most physically vulnerable, and especially babies, and babies in the womb. These people who kill are murderers, and they go to hell. Idolaters. Idolaters worship any other god besides the one true and living God. There's only one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whoever worships any other god worships an idol. That means that Islam worships an idol. Hindus worship idols. Buddhists worship idols. Any other religion, and even other uh, false, false presentations of Christianity, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Catholics, when Catholics are worshiping and praying to saints, they are worshiping idols. They're not worshiping the true God. All of these, any other deviation, they worship idols. And even atheists. Atheists are idolaters. They are their own lords and masters. They are their own gods. And sometimes they even say so explicitly. Atheists are really not no theists. That's what atheist means. No theists. They are actually self-theists or auto-theists. Auto meaning self. They worship themselves. They are their own masters. They're their own rulers. They dictate whatever they want to do. And they don't want anybody to tell them what to do. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Everyone worships and follows a certain master. Everyone does. If we don't follow the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, if we do not follow Him, then we worship idols. May I also say, there's another sense in which we worship idols. There are people who say, Oh, I believe in the Christian God, I believe in the Bible, and I believe in the Trinity. I believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God loves all the time. God loves always. He loves every person always equally. And He will never, He never expects me to repent of sin. He never punishes sin. And even uh, occasionally He might tap us on the hand, but he will not throw anybody into hell. We don't need to preach repentance and holiness. No need for any of that because God's a God of love. And he'll accept us just the way we are. And he doesn't expect us to change after he accepts us the way we are. Come as you are, they say. No, that's idolatry. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not that way. The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who shows loving kindness to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. All well and good on the hinge of repentance. Right? Matthew, or Luke 24, 46-47, Jesus said, Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We access God's love and mercy by repentance. Now, the passage I quoted halfway was Exodus 34, 6 and 7. In verse 7 of Exodus 34, verse 7, it says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the sons to the third and fourth generations. <coughs> and Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship, it says in the next verse, verse 8. Moses worshiped God that way. He didn't worship a God who had this lovey-dovey, syrupy kind of love. And he did not worship a, a God to the exclusion of his holiness and righteousness, his wrath and his punishment. He worshipped a God who, 
whom he understood correctly and, and rightly. If we don't worship God that way, misunderstanding his love and even misunderstanding his holiness and righteousness, we are worshiping an idol and we go to hell. Verse 15, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Everyone who loves and practices lying. Liars are sons of the devil. The devil was a deceiver from the beginning. Chapter 20, three times described the devil as a deceiver. We know this. Genesis 3.13, Eve said that the devil, the serpent deceived me and, he, and I ate. He's a deceiver and he deceives people into believing lies. They are duped by the devil to believe lies and then they repeat his lies. Lies about themselves, lies about God, lies about the ways of salvation, lies about the Bible, all kinds of lies they believe and they practice. Whoever loves and practices lying also goes to hell. Now this is just a sample list of some common sins. We've seen other lists in 21.8 and 21.27 and throughout the Bible. There are sample sins and lists of sins. Now let's finish. Verse 16. Jesus again. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Jesus repeats this truth that the angel was sent by him to testify for the churches. Now the churches of the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 certainly are the immediate recipients. But just like every other book of the Bible sent to an immediate audience still has successive generations as beneficiaries. If we want to be blessed we will heed the words of this book. So the churches are the initial churches, seven churches of chapters 2 and 3, but all subsequent churches, including you and me. He identifies himself. Notice here, his deity and humanity here. I am the root and the offspring of David. He's the root of David, so he's the source of David. How could he be the source of David unless he possesses deity? He's the one that gave David life. So that David was one of the branches of the tree. So he's the root, meaning he possesses deity. And he's also the offspring of David. He's a descendant of David. He was born of a descendant of David. Romans 1, 1 to 4. He was born of Mary, who was of the line of David. He's the offspring. So his humanity, his perfect humanity and without sin. Then he says he's the bright morning star. The bright morning star. After human history of darkness, he's the one who lights the new day. And when this light of the new day dawns, it will be day forever. As we saw in chapters 21 and 22, daytime will exist forever and ever because the bright morning star will be there to illumine all of us. Amen. Verse 17, final call. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. That is the Holy Spirit and the bride of the church. Call out to everyone. Say, come. It's time to come. You hear, read all this, understand all this, come. Believe in Christ. And let the one who hears say, come. Those who hear all of this, you recipients, you should also be saying, come to the unbelievers. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Spiritually thirsty. Like the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus was trying to show to her that she had spiritual thirst and she needed him to fulfill her thirst. John 4, 13 and 14. And let the one who wishes to, to take the water of life without cost. You see, this water of life that must be partaken of is without cost. There is no human action, no human deed. We, there's nothing we can offer. Our will, our free will, our repentance, our faith... These things don't originate in us. They are gifts of God. And we exercise them unto salvation. So there's no cost, no good deed, no one good deed, no any number of good deeds can merit our salvation. Salvation is a complete 100% gift of God. It's without cost. It does not cost us anything in order to obtain it. It costs the Father and the Son, but it does not cost us. Now, after we are converted, then it will, might cost us our life. 
but in order to obtain it, it does not cost us anything. How important are all of these words? Verses 18 and 19 explain. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If we add or subtract from this book, then God's going to place plagues on us, diseases, torment, suffering, 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Then there is no spiritual, eternal benefit. You will not partake of the tree of life and the holy city. There will be no new Jerusalem. There will be no Jerusalem in which righteousness dwells. None of that will be for those who take away from this prophecy. Don't add or, or subtract, or God may bring upon us physical and spiritual consequences. And the spiritual will be the lake of fire forever and ever. This is in concert with statements Moses has made in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, 12:32, and even in Proverbs 30, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, not to take away or not to subtract from the Word of God. No one should say, I like this part and I'll keep it, but I don't like this other part of the Bible and I don't want to keep it. I won't obey it. I won't believe it. We can't do that. We have to believe and obey all that's there. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Jesus again testifies. He is a witness, a constant witness that this is true. So if we are Christians, we believe what Jesus says. And we believe that He is coming quickly. And just as He says, I'm coming quickly, John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. This is similar to 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Maranatha. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And then He says, Maranatha. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. In the same way, Maranatha means, O Lord, come. Here, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen means this is true. This is faithful. I agree that this is right. This is true. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then a benediction, the final benediction. What we need, what everybody needs, is God's grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We need His grace from beginning to end. What He started in us, He will bring to perfection until the day of Christ Jesus. His grace. Philippians 1.6 I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray for His grace. Let's seek His grace. Let's depend on Him for everything. Let's believe everything in the Word of God. It is the Gospel. Let's exalt Christ in everything. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.